Thank you. Good morning, everybody. About two weeks ago, I had a really, really nice prawn risotto. And I was really surprised by the prawn risotto. One, because I had ordered grilled fish and mash. And they brought the food out, and I'm looking at a bowl of rice porridge with with literally like 10 prawn heads. They've made it into like a crown, like staring at me. And thankfully, I'm not allergic to prawns, and I, and I like prawns, but I don't necessarily like my food, you know, looking at me. I was in Vanuatu, and uh, we got in late on our flight, and we didn't have any food at the guest house, so we just went to a resort close by and got, got in the uh, restaurant there for dinner. And if you've been to places like that, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, the, what you order and what you get, you know, it, 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 it depends on what they have out there. So I was thinking fish, because we're literally looking at the Pacific Ocean, and it's just such a great idea. Prawn risotto. I'm thinking... Hmm, prawn risotto, that's actually hard to cook. Grilled fish is pretty easy to cook. You can do that. So I'm like, oh, man, here we go. It was so good. It was the best risotto I've ever had. And it was so good that a couple, uh, about a week later, when my flight was canceled and I had to stay in in town one more night and we didn't have any food, I alone went back there by myself and got the prawn risotto intentionally that time. And it was still just as good. I was, I was really excited. I have a, a really intense food memory. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you eat something that's really, really good and you can kind of think about that for a while. It just kind of sticks in your head. Every day we have to eat. Right? You have to eat food every day, but, but most of the time it's not exactly memorable. Maybe you remember what you ate yesterday. Maybe you remember what you ate the day before, but it eventually starts to fade. But it it did its job. It sustained you through that day. But every now and again, either intentionally because you go out or intentionally because you cook it for yourself or maybe as a surprise, you get something and it sticks with you for a while. And so as I was thinking about my faith and my journey, I grew up in the church, and uh, some of my first memories are literally in the church, in the nursery, or, or crawling through the pews. We had pews. Everybody know what pews are? The old, yeah, the old people are nodding. Yes, pews. We had pews back in the day, next to the organ and all that. Um, and those were my first memories. And I became a Christian when I was seven. I was baptized when I was seven. And I, I honestly can't really even remember why that decision made sense to me at that moment. And so I find that as, as I walk through life, as seasons change, as different things come, that uh, my anchors sometimes change. And so I, I, I'm thinking of it more like a good meal, where God has to sustain us each day in our faith. And sometimes the things that he gives us aren't really memorable, But it's what what we needed right then for that day. Just like, you know, the meal that you eat, the supper that you eat. But sometimes God gives you a a prawn risotto. Maybe it's right before something is about to happen and you're going to need that. Or maybe it's in the middle of a dark place and God gives you something that just you hold on to. Or maybe it's after and it helps make sense of what you've been through. And so today I just want to share with you three uh, meals that, that I've had over the last couple of years that God's given me 
Uh, they're completely disconnected. They're, they're my interests, so they don't necessarily have to interest you, but maybe, maybe they'll, they'll, you'll, you'll enjoy them too. And so I want to share with you these three things, uh, kind of like my, uh, a prawn risotto that I had a couple weeks ago, maybe uh, a steak and mash in the middle that I had in college my friend made for me. Still remember that one 20 years ago, but I still remember that steak. It was delicious. And then, uh, and then maybe a good cheesecake at the end. So uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about I, um, it, it, it's outside of the church, completely external, but it, it's really encouraged me these last couple of years. I really like history. I'll read a history book. I'll just pick up a new history book and I'll read it. I really enjoy it. Uh, I tend towards uh, Greek, Roman, that, that kind of a thing, uh, but I try to get out of that area uh, sometimes. Well, there's one uh, historian right now, living right now, he's writing. And every time one of his books come out, I, I try to get my hands on it to read it. His name's Tom Holland, not the, not the Spider-Man guy. Um, but he's, he's British. And so he wrote a book. He wrote a book in 2019 called Dominion, the making of the Western mind. And in 2020, during lockdown and all that, we were in Papua New Guinea. I got my hands on that book in digital form. If I had got my hands on that book in physical form, I would have been really surprised because in physical form, it's about that thick. In digital form, you don't really know that when you start and, you know, you're six months in, you're like, man, how much longer do I have to go here? You know, I've been reading for three weeks and I'm 2% in. What's going on? That book absolutely stunned me. I knew a little bit about Tom Holland. Tom Holland is agnostic. He's British. He does like to go to um, the Anglican Church sometimes, just more for the feels than anything else. Um, and he wrote this book on the making of the Western mind. And he walks chronologically, starting about 300 years before Jesus, going all the way up into the 1500s. And every chapter is about how some aspect of Judeo-Christian theology has influenced the West for the good. And so he starts with the idea that people have value just because they're people. This is a uniquely Judeo-Christian idea, but yet it is so inherent to us. We think about that. We think that somebody has value just because they're a person. And so he walks through the theology of that, that that actually comes from the first chapter of Genesis, that all humans are made in the image of God. And therefore, there, there's something about them. We don't know exactly what that means sometimes, but we know that it means something, that there's value to people. And so it was Christians in the 300s who first called for the abolition of slavery based on the idea that everybody had value. Unfortunately, we didn't get on board with that. And as Tom Holland points out, unfortunately, the whole church didn't get on board with that. And so as you go chapter by chapter, he'll talk about all these different things, that men and women are equal. That's a uniquely Western concept based on theology. And as you get to the last few chapters, he starts to make the comments that as the Western civilization shifts into a post-Christian space... Suddenly, all the assumptions that we have, that we grew up with, even if we never attended church, suddenly don't make so much sense. See, if you listen to philosophers who are trying to explain why humans have value inherently, they don't really make any sense. 
because they're trying to produce value out of nothing. Where what they really can't quite get themselves to say, but what the truth of it is, is that we believe people have value because they were created in the image of God. And so as I'm reading this book, I'm just really blown away. Like, who, what, what is this guy? And, and he's agnostic. And so I started to, to, I Googled him a little bit. And let's see. So here's a quote uh, from an interview that he had about his book. So his book, this isn't a history of Christianity. It's a history of what's been revolutionary and transformative about Christianity. About how Christianity has transformed not just the West, but the entire world. People in the West, even those who may imagine that they have emancipated themselves from Christian belief, in fact, are shot through with Christian assumptions about almost everything. All of us in the West are a goldfish, and the water that we swim in is Christianity, by which I don't necessarily mean the confessional form of the faith, but rather considered as an entire civilization. This is a historian who is going back, looking at the receipts, looking at the, the, the documents that are foundational to thought to Western civilization and coming to the conclusion externally to the church. He's not a Christian saying everything we have that's good is based on Christian theology and maybe we shouldn't be ditching it quite so fast. He's also um, very. Uh, uh, he's also a heavy user on uh, the the Twitter thing, um, and so somebody said something, and then he said something back. Um, he tweeted. I don't know. So somebody said that they don't like the idea of human rights being based on religion because religion is arbitrary. He responds, human rights aren't objectively true either. They derive from profoundly Christian theological presumptions. They are quite as culturally contingent as a belief in Christ's resurrection. So he is out there right now arguing in the on the online thing that Christianity is the foundation of all that is there. This is a, a really interesting quote. Um, this is a poem uh, written in 1867. This is an excerpt from a poem called, uh, called Dover Beach. The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdled furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. So in 1867, this guy is standing at the Dover Beach, and he's watching the tide go out. And he's saying that, I'm watching the tide of Christianity recede. I grew up being taught that that's true, that it's just the tide receding. When I was a kid and into my secondary school in uni, there was a thing called New Atheism. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and those guys, maybe, you, maybe you've heard of them where they, they started to argue that we needed not, not just to move away from religion, but we needed to abolish religion completely. And they started to get pretty uh, intense in their rhetoric. Uh, uh, famously, Richard Dawkins called uh, for atheists to publicly mock people of faith because their faith can't be proved. And so when I was in secondary school in uni, I was taught that it's just it's inevitable, that this decline is inevitable that Western civilization is going to go out and it's going to become secular. And we started to talk about, well, what does that mean for Christianity? Can it be a good thing? And there are good things about the, the, the church moving into the fringes, kind of like it was when Jesus was alive, kind of like it was in, in the early church. There's good things there. 
But it was all built on the assumption of this inevitable recession, this inevitable tide going out. As I looked more and more into Tom Holland, I found more and more and more people who are starting to come back. There's a guy that wrote a book called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Justin Burley. I don't know how to say his name, Briarly. Um, so he has a book and a podcast, uh, both, both of the same name there. And he is a Christian thinker, and he's engaged with atheism and atheist thinkers. And he, so he hosts debates uh, at, at an academic level. And so he's been around for a while monitoring this, watching this. And what he is seeing is more and more and more thinkers who are thinking themselves back into Christianity. And what they're finding more and more is that atheism doesn't answer the fundamental questions that we as humans have. I'm encouraged by this. I didn't know it was happening. I was in Papua New Guinea for 12 years. I didn't, I, I'm not plugged into academic circles. I don't know these things. I'm not into philosophy. But by reading one book about an agnostic guy who made the conclusion, hey, the best things that we have in, in Western civilization come from Christianity. And now being exposed to more and more things that are out there, I'm encouraged by perhaps that, that, that tide going out has, has kind of hit its low point. And maybe it's starting to come back in. And what that looks like, I don't know. It's going to create new challenges for the church as the tide potentially comes back in. The last person I wanted to talk about is uh, the, the last name there, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, she is a uh, born in Somalia, was raised all over North Africa and the Middle East, and then ended up in Europe as a refugee um, because she was starting to leave Islam. And specifically over the treatment of women. She herself experienced a lot of trauma as a woman in intense Islamic uh, places. So she became an atheist. She actually became an atheist and a good friend of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and those guys. And so when they would have conferences, these big atheism conferences, she would be there and be, she says herself now, she realizes she was a token woman and a token brown person for all these white men, uh, um, academics. And so she would be very anti Christianity, anti Islam, anti religion because what of her experience growing up. But as she started thinking and as she started interacting deeper and deeper and deeper, she found herself asking questions that Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris couldn't answer. And ultimately they're very dismissive of those questions. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? People like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris say, well, that's a stupid question. But yet that's the question that humanity throughout all over the world, regardless of your religious background, ask yourself. We think about these things. We worry about these things. And atheism just doesn't have an answer for it. And so as we look at our secular society in Australia and America, we're starting to see the cracks we were promised a bright future. We were promised uh, just never-ending economic growth. We were promised peace. And all these things are cracking through. And so we're seeing in the numbers, in the statistics, we're seeing record numbers of people just rocking up to church. No invite, never been to church before, just showing up to see what's going on. Right now in Australia, if you ask somebody to come to church, more than half the time they'll say, yeah, sure. 
And that's all because of what's happening. The tide is coming back in. It's gone out to its full extent and it's exposed a lot of ugly stuff. And so I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the possibility that maybe in the future we'll see a resurgence in respect for religion. We'll see a resurgence in respect for the church. We're already seeing it in the, in the last numbers for the confidence index that they do in Australia. You know, obviously the, the national government has plummeted. Uh, banks have plummeted. Coles and Woolies have plummeted. Guanus has plum- plummeted, right? Local religious institutions have skyrocketed at the same numbers. The same numbers that we've lost faith in the government is the same number that we've gone up in faith in local religious institutions. I'm encouraged by that. And I hope you are too. And that's just something that I've been munching on for the last couple of years that was new to me. It surprised me. And I've been really encouraged by that, that that the story that we tell, the thing that we're bringing to people, answers their questions. It gives them meaning. It gives them value in ways that secular society can't and hasn't and now they're actually open to it because people are seeing that the next thing i want to bring to you my 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 stake and mash if you will is the bible itself i'm in a bible translation organization um and i love the bible and i need to make it very clear that i am not that person that wakes up in the morning and reads the bible for three hours i really wish i was I really, really do. I struggle with that daily discipline of reading the Bible. Maybe you do too. So the things that I'm bringing right now, what I'm going to share right now, please do not take that as some sort of, you know, I'm at a different level or whatever. This is just that when I do crack the Bible, I'm always glad that I did. When I was a kid, I told you I was in the pews. I loved the Old Testament. That was, those were my stories. And it had nothing to do with, you know, God and everything like that because uh, when I was a kid, those were the stories where you, where you found, you know, the, the left-handed guy stabbing the king in the gut and running away and, and all those things. You could just open the Bible and you just find some of the most insane stories, the Old Testament. You're like, wow, this is cool. And so for a, for a young kid who, whose mind was shaped by, by G.I. Joe and things like that, do you guys, G.I. Joe here? Yeah? Okay. Okay. GI Joe here. Okay. Sorry. Um, you know, so that's what I was into, right? But now as I've grown and and I'm starting to appreciate the Bible for what it is, I'm coming back to the old Testament and and there's a whole new wave of scholarship that's reanalyzing the old Testament and seeing that there is so much depth there that we have missed. Now, I want to be clear too, that if you pick up the Bible in the English language and you read it, and you say, God, help me do this. Your life is going to be transformed. Because what's so amazing about the Bible is that at every level, it's transformative. And so if that's what your Bible study routine is, great, keep doing that. Or if you read in a group and discuss in a group, that's, that's amazing. I have the privilege of doing that every Thursday with uh, Fred and Graham and, and George and Peter. Did I see Peter? Where is he? There he is. I knew I saw you. I thought you were back there. Um, I have. I, I could do that every Thursday, where we just we literally just read a chapter of the Bible and discuss. And sometimes we kind of go more or less verse by verse, and sometimes we just kind of go off on a tangent. But it is amazing, and that's what the Bible can do. But I'd like to share some of the deeper uh, um, things that I'm starting to to see. So if, uh, Genesis two. 18, just as one example of the things that, that, that I've come across over the last couple of years. 
Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is an NIV translation. If you have your Bible open or, or, or you look at your Bible, what you will find for that word helper goes all over the place. Right? You've got helper. You've got companion. Famously, in King James, you have the word help meet. Like, help meet. Which wasn't a word back then, and it's not a word right now. It's just, they, they were trying really hard. And so one way that you can, can, can kind of change your Bible study pattern and see maybe something there that, that you wouldn't necessarily see is read a, read a verse or a passage in multiple translations of English. And when a word kind of shifts around and go all, goes all over the place, you know you're onto something there. Because you know the translators are like, well, it could be this, it could be this. So what we have under here is the word azer. So this is, this is Hebrew. The, uh, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for a few chapters in Aramaic, but these were the languages of, of the Jewish people. And so this is the word azer. And you go um, from, from right to left. Um, this is actually a really interesting word that occurs 21 times in the Bible. And if you, get, if you get your hands on a concordance, they call it a concordance, where you can look up the, every single occurrence of a word. And if you get a word that's between 20 to 40 times in the Old Testament, you can have a lot of fun with it. Because that's actually a bite, you can bite that out off. You can look it up. And so what you do is you look up all the occurrences of this word. So it occurs two times in Genesis, both in this little section. Uh, one time in Exodus. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my Azer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. This is Moses explaining why he named one of his sons Eleazar. And you actually see Azer in his son's name, right? Eleazar. Uh, okay, so then we've got three times in Deuteronomy. One of them here. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and Azer and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you, and you will tread on the heights. Then we have a lot of uses in Psalms, 10 total. Here's an example. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their azer and shield. And then finally, there's five in all of the prophets. Here's an example of of it in the negative sense. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your azer. So almost all 21 times... The word azer is used, it's applied to God, except for two times when it's applied to the woman. And then there's two other times when it's applied to somebody who couldn't be an azer. You trusted in him as your azer and he failed you. So what do we have as this picture? What is an azer? This book... Is a, it's a translation. It's by a guy by the name of Robert Atler. Atler. This is his life's work. This is, well, this is one-third of his life's work. This is just Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, um, and the other, the five ones that I can't name off the top of my head right now. That's how much I love the Bible. Um, he says, so the reason it's so long is because he does, so he translated the, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament like that, and then that's all the footnotes. The goal of his translation was to capture the weirdness of the Old Testament, to capture the things that are there. And so he says about this, um, this verse, 
if I actually stick on my right thing there. There we go, 2.18. The Hebrew azer is notoriously difficult to translate. The word after azer means alongside him, opposite him, a counterpart to him. Help is too weak because it suggests merely an auxiliary function, whereas azer elsewhere connotes active intervention on behalf of someone, especially in military context, as often in Psalms. So basically, he's saying that when we say helper, the woman is a helper, we're missing all of it. Because when you say helper, you're thinking, eh, somebody alongside. I've got the job. Big man has the job. And woman is there to help me. But that's not what the Bible actually says. The Bible says, I will create an azer alongside of him. So Robert Atler translates this, I shall make him a sustainer beside him. So what do we do with that? We, we, we've changed potentially the, the, the proper English translation from helper to sustainer. Well, think about it for a minute. When you were a kid, the women in your life, your mom, your grandma, your auntie, stepmom, adopted mom, older sister, teacher, Sunday school teacher, think about them as a gift from God in your life to sustain you. Does that resonate with the, 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 the function of women in our life? It does when I thought about it that way. See, no longer is woman the helper. Woman is actually the essential thing that helps humanity keep going. I find that really amazing. Think about the women in your life right now. Your partner, your sister, co-workers, whoever. Abdiel, look at Nitha. These women are in your lives. They're gifts from God to sustain you. Is Nitha not here? Okay, she's got to watch the video. Let's go a little bit further. Genesis 2, 21 through 22. So God has decided he's going to create a sustainer for man, uh, 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 someone that's going to help him accomplish the mission, who's going to be there alongside him, sustain him in, in, in his troubles. So he causes man to go into deep sleep. He takes one of the ribs, and then he built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. Built. That is a weird word. Don't you think? Which is why in most of our English translations, they don't say that. Because it doesn't make any sense. Why would you say built? And this is literally the word built. This is the construction word. This is how you make a house. This is how you make a city. This is how you make an altar. It's only used for that in the entire Bible. Except for here. God builds woman. Very bizarre. It's almost, you know, like, uh, it's the imagery. What, you're taking a rib and you're stacking it and, like, you're stacking ribs on top. It's almost like, like, like a brick house kind of a thing. Like, that's what he's describing. And who knew that Commodore song was actually based on sound theology? Nobody? Nobody's fan of the funk? 1970s American funk? Nobody? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Okay, so let's talk about why? Why that word? So if you know your Old Testament story, you've got the garden, God builds the woman, 
And then uh, uh, they sin, they fall, they go out of the garden, and then we have the, the Cain and Abel story, right? So, so there's Cain, there's Abel, they're the sons, they uh, 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 get in an argument, God uh, um, favors Abel over Cain, Cain decides he's going to murder, God says don't do that, you know, stand up against sin, he's at the door trying to crouch you, but Cain kills his brother. So... God calls him out on it, and God says, you're, you're out. We've we got to go. And Cain is afraid, right? Cain's afraid, and he says, they're going to kill me. And God says, well, I'll put a mark on you. Then we get to 4, 16, 17. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and he dwelled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then he, that's Cain, became the builder of a city and called the name of the city like his son's name, Enoch. This is the next use of the word built. So if we're Hebrews and this per- and somebody's telling us the story or we're reading the story and you you get a little twitch when he says and the Lord built built uh, built Eve. I'm like wait, what? That was weird. And then you go through the story. And then the next time you get to built, you think, "Oh. Okay, maybe there's something here." So what did Cain build? Cain built an ire. A city. God built an azer, a woman, a sustaining presence in the man's life. Now, if you look at those two words, you can see they're pretty similar. They, have, they both share the, the, the first and the last letter. But look at the middle letter as well. They're different, but they're kind of similar, aren't they? These words rhyme in Hebrew. And by rhyme, I don't mean like the English way of rhyming. By rhyme, I mean this is a poetic symbolism, a poetic linking that if you knew Hebrew, you would see this. And so now, what do we do with this? We have to stop and think. What's the connection between an azer and an ayer? Well, in one case, there was a problem, right? It was actually the first problem. It's not good for man to be alone. So what does God do? God builds an azer. Then Cain has a problem, right? Cain's problem is, hey, if you send me out, everybody's going to kill me. And God says, okay, I'll fix it. I'll give you a mark. But then what does Cain do? Cain builds a city. The thing that's interesting about this word city, it doesn't mean like Cain's city. It means a fortified, walled-in place. It's a place of protection. What's really interesting about the Old Testament and about the Cain story is that God didn't kill Cain. God didn't destroy Cain. God, God didn't punish Cain like he deserved. God actually gave him something that would sustain his life, that mark. Cain did not trust in God. He did not trust that mark. He built a city. So, we have a link here. We've got some Hebrew rhyming going on. What do we do with that? Well, in your life right now, how are you building your own city? Rather than letting God provide your rescue. What are you doing to make sure that you're protecting yourself or your family 
rather than trusting in God to provide that protection. So these are the things that, that, that I've come across in some Old Testament resources. I really, really love, love these things. I think it's a lot of fun. If you're interested in it, you could try the Bible Project, which has an app, a podcast, and a website. They do free grad-level um, courses just online. You can check that out. A lot of what I, I had today came from them. Uh, there's also the Bible for Normal People, which is a podcast. The, this, is, this one's called the Hebrew Bible, a translation with commentary. And then another way that you could get into the con- something like this, consider in your daily Bible study, reading a commentary alongside of it. Just any commentary. Just pick it up. Read, you know, whatever passage you're going to read, and then read the commentary on it. Just to get that scholarly, deeper level kind of a thing. Um, and you can check out the New International Commentary on the New Testament or the Old Testament. And then there's another one called Mothers as Image of God, which um, explores kind of that first point a little bit more like, like what I was saying. Um, so there's just some really interesting things out there. But if that's not your thing, if you are vegetarian and you don't like steak, that's fine. Keep reading your Bible. Just read your Bible. It'll transform your life whether, whether you read the English translation that you've read for as, uh, as a kid or whether you teach yourself Greek and Hebrew and you go to the original languages. Either way, the Bible will change your life, and that encourages me. The last thing that I have, I forgot to mark what time I started, and i and about time to finish up. Perfect. In conclusion... This uh, guy here is uh, Jeffrey, the guy in the yellow shirt and the blue shirt. Um, I realized I don't have any pictures of Jeffrey because every picture I have of Jeffrey, whenever the camera comes out, Jeffrey always gets a little bit in the back. That's just kind of who he is. Um, so Jeffrey is a Papua New Guinean, and um, I know him through Bible translation and through the work there. He's the primary translator for his vernacular language called Apar. Um, and Apar is kind of in the middle of absolute nowhere. It takes him three to four days to come to town to see me. Boat ride, hiking, then waiting for a car. Guy shows up completely covered in mud, but with a big smile on his face. The picture on the left uh, in the yellow shirt, that's him looking at, for the first time, the printed scriptures that he translated. We had a big dedication for that last August. When uh, it was time to start, we found all this out after the fact. When it's time to start preparing for the dedication, Jeffrey and a group of church leaders decided that they were going to start consistently fasting and praying. This wasn't something that was the missionaries' ideas. They didn't tell us about it. They felt like there was something was going to happen, and they needed to fast and pray. They have a group that's next to them that are their traditional enemies called the Nend. And the Nend are kind of mean folks, pretty nasty guys. And they felt like something was going to happen. And so in the lead up to the dedication, the Nen sent a messenger. And they said, we are going to come and we're going to completely mess up your dedication. Just, just so you know, just call the whole thing off. Otherwise, we're going we're gonna to blow it all up. And Jeffrey sent the messenger back with a message that said, well, let's have a little competition. You pray to your gods, I'll pray to mine. And we'll see what you can do. He didn't tell us this. And with, you know, our, you know, our training is in risk avoidance and all these things. I don't know what, what decisions we would have made because we had international guests flying in, getting on a helicopter to go out to this place, you know, funders and things like that. This is a chance to like have a party. And little did we know that there was like active physical threat against this party. 
After the dedication happened, a group, they sent another messenger to Jeffrey and asked him to come to explain what happened. And Jeffrey said, well, I don't know what happened. So he goes over there, and they sit down with him. They said, we came. We told you we were going to come, and we came. We had guns. We had implements of spiritual power. And we were ready to go in there and start killing people and mess this whole thing up. Because you're getting something that we're not getting, and that's not acceptable. But we were in the jungle outside of your village, and we tried to go in, and there was a big light. And we tried to push through, but we were just too scared. So we ran away. And now we would like you to explain what in the world just happened. And Jeffrey said, look, guys, this, it was a thing of light. What happened there was a thing of light. And it's not meant to be bad for you. It's meant to be good for you, too, if you would just get it in your heads. I heard that story from Jeffrey. And, of course, he's just, you know, he's just telling me what happened. You know, yeah, 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 that happened, that happened, that happened. I'm like, wait, what? Like, how close did they get with actual guns? Like, I'm, I'm technically responsible for some of these people. And I am just so encouraged that the Spirit is still working. He's still out there. He's still moving among people. Somebody like Jeffrey, who has like a grade three, grade four education, who is not really all that important in worldly standards. His own government can't really figure out how to get health care and schooling into his area, and nobody really cares, honestly. But when he sat down and prayed, with other church leaders, God heard him. He didn't need the missionaries to like mediate or anything like that because he has direct access to God himself and the Spirit moved and answered his prayers in a really mighty way in a probably a much mightier way than he would have for us because we would have been thinking about how to mitigate and how to maybe move the dedication because we don't want anything bad to happen. But Jeffrey had the faith to just go out there. And I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by people like Jeffrey all over the world Church leaders, we're seeing movements all over outside of the Western world. And they're bringing to faith a power, an expectation of power that we've lost in our materialistic backgrounds. I believe in demons. I believe in angels. But when push comes to shove, I actually kind of don't. Like theologically, I believe in them because the Bible says they exist. But in my daily life, it's not really a thing for me. And that's my loss. For Jeffrey, it is a daily struggle on the, in the spiritual realm. And for that reason, he is a much deeper and mature Christian than I am. And that gives me encouragement. That gives me faith. That's the, these are the things that I think about when I wonder, is it all worth it? Is Christianity worth it? Should I go to church today? All these kinds of things. This is right now what I'm thinking about that externally there are people who are coming back to faith because they couldn't find their answers outside. And and that the Bible itself, if you really just dive into it, be it at at the English level or if you go deep, you're going to find transformative power there. Or if you just open your ears and hear the stories that are coming in from all over the world, there's power in our faith. And it will sustain you. God will give you what you need each day, whether it's and, you know, just, a, just a meal, just an unforgettable meal. It's what you need for today. Or give you something really special that will, you can hold on to for years. 
So as, as I conclude, I just pray that, that, that you would be open to that, that maybe you would consider some of my meals or your own. Share them with each other. That's what the body is for, to share these kinds of meals together. So let's pray. Father, we are just so blessed to be a part of your body that is sustained by your spirit, that has, has Christ as the head. And Lord, we just pray that you would sustain us that um, you would give us the things we need each day to continue to have faith in you, to continue to believe in you, Lord. Help us to remember the ways that you have in the past. Help us to see what you're doing in other people's lives as well and be encouraged by that, Lord. Lord, we just want to be a light for you. Help us to do that. Help us to reach out to friends, families, neighbors. Help us to love the way you loved. Help us to encourage Lord, we just we want to transform our, our own lives, our families, and our, our neighborhoods. Lord, we just pray that you give us the power to do it. We know that you can. We know that it's there. We just pray that you would help us to be open to that and to access it, Lord. We just pray that you would sustain us this week with a small meal or a big meal. Lord, just give us what we need each day, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.